0: Max. 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 My name is Max.
1: My name is Yuri Lowenthal. My name is Travis Sintel. And You
2: Are Awaited. You Are Awaited is a Mad Max Fury Road podcast where Yuri and I designed a podcast where we get to talk to people who inspire us and intimidate us. And today is a perfect example of this. Someone we've been wanting to talk to for weeks and weeks and
1: weeks. And he's here now. Sort of here. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce to you... Mark Sexton, I really don't know how, how, how else to do that.
2: We've been, you no. know what, Mark? Uh, we've been introducing you uh, in in advance of this
1: for the last six episodes,
2: so <laughs> we've done the introductions. But how would you describe yourself? First of all, thanks for joining us. But tell yes, us, yes, I are. mean
1: uh, artist extraordinaire, uh, st- storyboard artist, uh, comic book artist, artist of, of, of many different things, uh, things things that we have loved and things that we're looking forward to. Well done. Thank you. I know you asked but, him uh, to do it, that, and then that I did sounds
3: lovely. it. Thank you. Yeah, well, well, thank you for having me. I'm going to describe myself as a failed geneticist.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yep, that's good.
3: Yeah, let that, that, that that, that, That's a good place to start. <laughs> nice.
1: did, did you go to school? Did you go to school uh, for for genetics? Now, now I'm I'm totally digging. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, I I spent eight years at university studying a, doing a PhD in genetics and then quit six months out from finishing and ended up doing comics instead.
2: Which you smart spin- No, I love that. you sp- but c- because eight years quitting six months before you're finished feels like a certain type of fuck you. That's like a aggressive fuck you. You may almost may as well finish at that point, right?
3: Yeah, kind of. What happened? But there like- may have been a bit more of a fuck you in there as well. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> the professor that I was uh, the professor of the department who was my uh, supervisor. Um, and your listeners are going to be so interested in this. Um, I am. Uh, uh, was was my supervisor, and uh, he told me that I I was doing comics at the same time. He told me I had to stop doing comics. So you never tell an artist or a writer of comics to do that sort of thing. So I put him in the comics.
2: Ah, uh, and you yeah. killed him? Did he you gave kill him? him?
3: All the comics about a week before I finished.
2: <laughs> wow, fantastic! I love that. That's a good. That, you know what that that makes me understand even more than your work. Why? Why you're uniquely suited to this Mad Max universe? Because that's a good fuck you. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah, you you going to work at these things. It's the slow burn. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> she describes uh-huh. slow burn. Slow burn. Hey, 50,
1: 15 years is a slow burn, but uh, but we, we reap all the rewards.
3: Oh, yes, we're getting there. We're getting
2: there. It's we right. have a million yeah. questions for you, Mark. And I expect this, yeah. unlike most podcasts, I think this one will be, hopefully, if it all goes according to plan, a lot of you talking, because I. Don't want to monopolize a second of the time we could use, which I'm doing right now by making this sentence a long run on (laughs) sentence. Um, You're a writer. It's what you do. I extend things. lovely sentences. (laughs) Yeah, right. So we've been talking a lot about the comic book. um, And I know I read the intro to the comic book that you wrote a couple times. Uh, First of all, gorgeous comic book. Incredible. Loved it. Super
1: And, and th- thank you, and thank you, Mark, for finally giving him an excuse to read the comic book. It used to be a thing on this podcast where I had read it and then I gave it to him to read. And then every time I would say, so now that you've read the comic, now you understand maybe where this actually... And he's like, I still haven't read it. Yeah, sorry. Um, so so, thank you for finally giving him an excuse to read it.
3: <laughs> yes, no, I've been, I've, I've been listening to you actually talking to him about it. yeah, uh, well, you know, one day, one day. One right. Oh, yeah, at, I, out of, that's
1: um, how much he respects you and uh, your work. I'm... Yes,
3: although, although you didn't have to read it in order to enjoy the film. Hopefully it just made it a little bit um, richer.
1: Yeah, I no, I, and, and I do love that. I, I love the idea that there is, if you love the world and you love the movie, that there are other things out there that you can dig into as opposed to something that you needed to have as background to understand the film, because other films have done that. And I think that's uh, uh, cheap and horrible.
3: Um, so. Yeah. Oh, that's 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 not making a complete story that a whole od- that an audience can just enjoy for its own sake. Exactly. And and, and Which is uh, robbing everyone.
2: I think so, I think so. And and part of it, I, I I'm sure part of it could be considered laziness, but I think a lot of it is. I've been trying really hard on this podcast to come in with a fresh set of eyes as people would come to see the film who are sort of laymen and coming at it from a fanboy perspective, not an expert or intellectual perspective. That's kind of been a choice that we made on the podcast. Um, Inspired either out of, um, you know, artistic artistic integrity or laziness. You can take your pick. (laughs) I'll
3: I'll, I'll go with with the former. God bless you. And and, and having said that, um, having listened to you guys, usually you're very, very, very... Very spot on about what you say. I I was uh, delighted to hear you saying uh, one of the earlier episodes, uh, there's a difference between story and plot. And it's something that I keep on saying to people all the time. There's a difference between story and plot. They're two different things. And it's nice to hear you guys say that. So, was, that
1: was
2: a good thing. Let me say this to you, Mark. Uh, y- if you could have a picture on us right now, we're smiling
1: so big. <laughs> it's yeah, that, funny. The, my boner may be obscuring the camera. Yeah, it's and, and so and nice we just, and, <laughs> and it's the first high-five of the show, because I think, there we go. Makes me happy. That makes me extremely happy, yeah. because, you know, other other people have, you know, posited that uh, that we, you know, all the things that we've sort of dug into and found in this film, we're giving a lot more credit than, than is due to, to to the creators, that you know, but I don't think that that's true at all. Um, and
3: I, and it's, one of, it's one of George's favorite sayings, actually, story and plot are different.
1: Oh,
2: we, can, we came to that. That's so happy. I So just to kick things off here, Mark, um, I, I, I'm a little familiar from the comic book and uh, from talking to Yuri about you, but just for our listeners... Maybe give us um, in the intro of the comic book you start to do this, but an intro into how you met George and how this collaborative process started working, and how far out of quitting grad school were you when you walked into the Happy Feet office?
3: Oh god, um, uh, let's see. Uh, quit, quit union. Uh, this is this is where half the audience go. Oh god, he's so old. Um, quit, quit union in 1995, and started in the film industry a year later. Ironically, by doing the comics that I was doing, which I got banned in Australia for doing comics, uh, which if, is another story. Can, which, you, can that, you tell that story? I think you story? need to elaborate briefly yeah, we'll, on that. We'll take that sure. story
2: too, yeah. if that's okay.
3: okay. Okay. So there was a, there was a um, band in Australia, an underground band called Tism, which is uh, short for This Is Serious Mum. And it's, uh, it's kind of like The Residents, only a really low rent. Uh, they don't exist anymore, sadly. But um, uh, we, I love the residents. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, the residents. You know, I uh, think they're an uh, interesting interesting band. I think they're still around, actually. They they always they be... always wearing, always wearing this, disguises so that yeah. no one knows who they are. And uh, Chism did that as well. except they just wore balaclavas, <laughs> and uh, uh, we loved them. They're very, very, very uh, Australian, uh, basically. It's, it's a band which basically says, fuck you, nothing, it's nothing to do with the artist, it's all to do with the music, sod you, and making a kind of artistic point of that, while at the same time being incredibly humorous about it. Sure. And myself and the guy who were doing comics were big fans of them, so we ended up doing two comics for them, and uh, they ended up being quite successful, but the uh, second one, the band decided to write themselves, and they decided, being very intelligent people, uh, most of them all, they all were musicians Second. And they all had day jobs, and half of them are teachers. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so they wrote this anti drug comic that was cunningly disguised as a pro drug comic.
0: Hmm.
3: <laughs> and the third page had a member of Tism hold up a syringe full of um, heroin and saying, Take drugs, kids, mm-hmm. do me no harm, and injecting himself in the back of the throat with heroin <laughs> and then having a really horrible time. Sure. Now, we've been as. Clever as we possibly could, and made sure that everybody who actually looked at the comic could realise that it was stuff that wasn't necessarily suitable for a younger audience. Right, right. And uh, this is this is at a time when comics in Australia were distributed all around the country in news agencies or newsstands.
0: Sure.
3: And uh, and readily available to anybody who wanted to pick them up. And, uh, so we had this we had this comic out there, gave it to the distributors. They said, yeah, we'll have the usual 10,000. He said, you should read it before you put it out there. That's a 10,000. Gave them the copies. They put them out there 24 hours later, recalled. Um, wow. screaming at us on the phone. We'll never distribute anything by you again. Uh, your comics are banned. Your band. Get out of here. And ironically, the day after that happened, I got a phone call from the producer who was working with Alex Proyas. Who oh, wow, Did The Crow. Right. Mm-hmm. He had just broken his previous storyboard artist and needed a new one uh, to do Dark City. And uh, so I got rung up and asked him about like to do that. And so, uh, and, that, and the reason why was because he'd read the comic book that got me banned.
1: Fantastic.
3: So that, I love it. And,
1: and Prius is, um, is, is a big sort of band and, and punk rock guy himself. So that must have really turned him on.
3: Yeah, oh, particularly. I think I think TISM was one of the bands that he's always wanted to do a uh, video clip for. And so you mm-hmm. were in the right place at the right time.
2: My one of my friends um, did a did a music video just out of grad school uh, called "Post 9 11 Blues." Uh, he's a Pakistani uh, British guy, and um, it's just really well produced, super funny, great rap song. Uh, young kid immediately got banned by the BBC. And so everyone wanted to see it. It was this like weird backlash that he certainly couldn't have planned, but led to a lot of artistic projects for him as well. So it's really really funny the way that works sometimes. Where, is, just, he, where is he now? That he's time? not doing anything. He's yeah. really dropped off the map, this yeah. kid. But, right. Too bad. But, yeah, he had problems. Well,
3: we, well, we, we had our, we, uh, myself and the guy who did the comics, uh, John Petropolis, his name was, we had our uh, retirement plan set up, which we had a box of those Tism comics that had got banned, and we thought, yeah, we'll keep them for 10 years, then we'll sell them. And he put them in his garage, and you know it was a big cardboard box in mm. his
0: garage. And he came
1: back ten years later and opened up, and they had been eaten by snails. No, oh. eaten by <laughs> snails.
3: You know, Several I, thousand copies eaten by
1: snails. You know, it, it being Australia, I was expecting something a little more dangerous than snails.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they're pretty, pretty angry snails. Although,
1: right. and and I guess, and I guess, if you're a comic book, snails are fucking dangerous. Scary.
0: Right. Yeah, so, so, yeah. so you get
2: your
1: you get your first job out of grad school. Uh, you work in the yeah. film
2: industry, and then then what happens? Um,
3: all right. Uh, literally went straight from Dark City, which I learned absolutely nothing on. Didn't know anything about storyboarding when I started, and still wow. didn't know anything about storyboarding when I finished. <laughs> um,
1: Perfect. It, it's a good looking film. I'm I'm glad you somehow you made it through.
3: <laughs> it's it's an awesome film. It was great fun to work on. Uh, Anyway, we won't go to that. There's a, uh, there's a lot of things I can say about that film. Um, yep, another but, uh, podcast. I went straight on to um, Babe 2 with uh, George. Pig in the City. Pig in the City, which uh, is a film which I really, really wish one day George's cut actually got released. Because oh. it's so much better than the cut that actually is out there. Wow,
1: because I'm a fan of the cut that's out there, but to see George's cut now makes me really, really curious.
3: No, yeah, no, it's it, it, it's it's so much better. There's this, is a twenty minute sequence in the middle of the film that got removed. Really, because the um, because the studio had basically freaked completely about the film. They re- really thought they were going to get another Babe, and they got a George Babe. Right, uh, right. Uh, which was a rather a different film. Certainly, and uh, and uh, literally, there was a point at which I uh, and I. This is a story that George is related. And so mm-hmm. it may be of apocryphal, you never know. Sure. But he did say at one point they literally had a discussion with the studio head, who was actually literally sitting on the cans of film in his office, saying, "This shit's not leaving this office. We wow. recut it." Wow. Um, but anyway, apparently, in the end, they had to recut it. They had to um, redo the music, and they had to uh, excise 20 minutes of the film.
2: Do you think that will ever get uh, seen? Or, or is that oh, just... I, I,
3: I wish it would. I really wish it would. And maybe one day it will. I mean, the film's gone through a lot of reappraisal over the last uh, 20-odd years. So, mm-hmm. you know, George George doesn't really usually go back and actually revisit his old stuff. He likes moving on to new things. So, Well,
2: Fingers we saw crushed. we <laughs> saw a a Q and a with him uh, months ago, and he said that the first time he had seen Road Warrior in like 20 years was at this New York screening. And we thought, that's kind of crazy that he hasn't seen that movie in that long. Yeah. But yeah, it says but something you know, about his we, character, I the guess.
3: thing about George is he's got a really, really strong visual memory. Ah, so mm. he remembers the film. It's really interesting when we talked to him um, doing um, doing Fury Road uh, because uh, he used to say Mel's because at that point it was going to be Mel Gibson and we'd be drawing uh, Mel, you know, Mel, Mel Max in the frames, and he'd go, "Right, Mel's too short." And we go, "What do you mean?" He go, "Mel's taller than that." And you go no, and he go oh no, sorry, I'm remembering. And what he'd do is he was remembering how he saw Mel in the original Bad Max on the on the editing suite.
0: Wow! Uh, wow. And
3: at that stage, the editing suite, of course, has done. It would uh, I can't, can't quite remember the, the technical terms, but it would uh, change the aspect ratio so that he was stretched, and he looked about ten feet tall. <sighs> oh,
2: that's, he, that's remarkable. He Bad Max, I love that. That just, I mean, that explains why his. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of visual quirks that guy has that lends itself to such a visual style on the screen, but that's a really,
1: really funny one specifically.
3: Yeah, a uh, lot of fun.
1: Uh, so, what's so, so so Go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, I was I was just going to say so. You've so you've been working with George now for a really long time, um, and and it only you know stands that when you, when you work with somebody for a long enough time, as you know, if they've wanted to work with you for that, that it just seems uh, natural then that. You know, going forward on his newest Mad Max, which I know has now been, he's been trying to do for you know for 15 years before it came out. Um, Started in
3: 1997.
1: 97. That's so crazy. So so what? I mean, what? I don't. I can't think of a process that long. And obviously, you know, anything that that I've done, but that that many projects go through that long a gestation period and don't and don't die. Um yeah, what?
3: Uh, it, it was it was the film that just wouldn't die; uh, just kept coming back. It was like the Walking Dead of films. <laughs> yeah, up yeah. coming out and being really good. Um,
1: for for you, but, what was uh, that? What was that process like for you to to be on a you know a project that I'm, I'm sure at first when he started talking about it, he thought that this is something that was going to you know come down the pipeline for him very soon, and then and then it didn't, and then but then so many years later, but to have kept working on it for fifteen years. Yeah,
3: no. uh, well, bizarrely enough. It started while we were doing Babe 2, Uh, and Brendan McCarthy, who co-wrote the film with him and did a lot of the uh, very early design work, Mm -hmm. uh, came into the building and worked for I think about maybe five or six months, just brainstorming ideas, painting lots of pictures, and I think there was um, another artist who came in for a little uh, short period of time, and uh, a writer who didn't work out and I think George has talked about that in the past why that guy didn't work.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and they worked on it for about six months. So we've got happy pigs upstairs. Well, actually dark dark moody pigs <laughs> upstairs. Yeah, no, like, I I would really I would argue yeah. I would, I would, is the post apocalypse.
1: Yeah, I would argue that um, some of Mad Max made it into Babe Pig in the city, <laughs> even in the cut that I saw.
3: <laughs> oh, big time, big time. Uh, the 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 shot language is still the same. It's it's you mm-hmm. know everything that involves a chase is always is actually just basically a Mad Max chase scene with pigs. And That's dogs. hysterical.
2: This is probably a, a silly um, minutia question, but in a situation, um, you and I have both worked as screenwriters before. So, is there a situation where there's development money funding this guy? Or is he coming in pro bono because he loves the project? Like what? How how is that working out?
3: Uh, I think um, Kennedy Miller. Uh, exceptionally good at um, at getting development money from studios to do stuff but after a period of time so I think they probably would have bankrolled themselves for a certain period of time and then taken something that looked awesome to the studio and said okay now
0: just yeah, refund okay. us a
3: bit of this money and just keep us going so okay. they're good at that. I mean Mad Max went through three different studios wow. uh, Fury Road went through it was originally I think with uh, Universal
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Actually, I think it was originally with Fox, and then with Universal, and then it went to Warner Brothers. Wow! And, uh, and Warner Brothers is where it stayed. But yeah, it, it went through. It went through the um, went through the rounds, and everybody wanted to make it, but nobody wanted to spend that amount of money on a thing that they basically thought of as a you know a quite old 1980s action franchise mm-hmm. that you know a modern audience wasn't going to remember. So yeah, it was an it Was an interesting process to go through. That's for sure.
2: Did you know? At what did you know the whole time, or, or at what point did you realize that the the studios were obviously sort of mis misinterpreting what the film was going to be? Is there a point you realized that, or you were always like if these dumb studios would just make this, it's going to be revolutionary and exciting? Like, did you always think that?
3: Um. Yeah, I think I think I think it was. Yeah, I, th- I don't think anybody really quite understood where George is coming from with it and I don't think to a certain degree George had quite made everything completely gel in terms of how it was actually going to look. Um, you know, storyboarding is a really good way of actually getting something across but um, it's interesting. I, I I keep being surprised about how many people in the film industry who
2: you would think actually can read pictures hmm. yeah uh, can't. Interesting. And I,
3: and, yeah, yeah, and I don't know whether you've experienced that in your time. I mean, I've worked with um, visual effects producers and visual effects supervisors who can't read storyboards. I just go, how I,
1: does that work? Yeah, I would you think have, it's the, the, the same language. Board. You would think, yeah, yeah. You would have thought
3: so. But yeah, yeah it's, it's extraordinary. And so, you know, one of the reasons for doing Mad Max the way we did was so that you'd have that universal language that everybody could follow, but that... I think, to a certain degree, I think maybe a lot of, a number of the studio executives who complicated the issue, perhaps you could mm-hmm. say, probably didn't believe that the end result was going to be like those storyboards. Right. Because you're used to it actually evolving and going further and um, and totally changing on the day and stuff of like that, which is not really what happened on Fury Road all that much. If, so, if,
2: if you can talk about this, uh, are there any disagreements or disagreements in the room um, whilst sort of storyboarding the, or, or I guess plotting out and scripting the original film that, um, that stick in your memory?
3: Um, if
2: you can't answer that, that's okay.
3: Really, you know, it, was, it was actually it was quite an interesting process. It was, we, I mean, we literally sat in the room with George every single day. And at, at one point, it was Brendan McCarthy, George, of course, um, another storyboard artist called Peter Pound, who ended mm-hmm. up going off and doing vehicle designs. Mm-hmm. which he did an extraordinary job on. Yeah, and obviously. And, and it was and it, and it was actually really probably the most fun creative time I've ever had because basically it was just four guys sitting in a room working on a cool project and having a lot of fun doing it. We all were very, very familiar with it. And I don't think at any point there was any real disagreements about the story that I can really remember. Yes. I wasn't there for the very first... Um, iteration where George and Brendan went through the plot outline, the story outline mm-hmm. as it were, and wrote out a they wrote out a working document, um, which is fairly rough. So right. there may probably was arguments then. Sure. But um, no, the disagreements have more been after the film came out, particularly with the end bit between Brendan and George. But that's nothing bad. That's just Brendan just going, Why did that happen? George going, Well, that's why Brendan, but no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah, do you... Brennan's still confused as to why Max didn't go up on the platform. We at love the end it. Of the film, which we, is we... what happened
2: in the storyboard to the
3: end of the film.
1: Yeah, we love we love that choice. Mm-hmm. We we heard yeah. that oh. we heard that so, that we heard that that was a Tom Hardy discussion or a Tom Hardy choice, um, or at least that he had something to do with that. Um, and I guess and that and that ties back to and you can comment on that if you if you have any knowledge of that. But also, you know, you talk about the, um, the studio execs and even special effects, you know, visual effects people not grasping it, even though it's, it's laid out in front of them in, in pictures. Um, I know, you know, it's, it's, it's well known that, that Tom Hardy, even working on the film, had a hard time grasping what it was that George was trying to do. And it was very frustrating for him because he didn't see what George saw. Um, yeah. so, so it seems like it, you know, it, it, it is a vision that, that, that a lot of people had trouble you know at grasping
3: it's, it's interesting I mean I think for Tom as well I mean if you think about Mad Max there are so many cuts in that film yeah it's, it's the it's the, it's George's Paul Greengrass film if you like yeah, um, yeah except yeah. done with real um, commitment to actually making sure everything works and you can follow everything mm-hmm. that's what that's George's real strong point is actually making sure the audience can always follow what's going on um, whereas you know Paul Greengrass who does excellent films but he does just shoot a whole pile of stuff and then cut around it until it actually makes some form of sense right um, but um, I think the thing about it is there's so many cuts and the shots are so quick that I think it was very hard for someone like Tom particularly to probably wrap his head around you know yeah what are we doing because a shot would say a shot would be like all right get set, roll and stop. And it'd be like that, you know, he'd have about three seconds to do something and then they'd move on to the next thing. Right. I think as an actor, it would be very, very, very hard to wrap your head around exactly what's going on.
1: Absolutely. And I, th-
3: I think Tom's a little, uh, possibly, he doesn't really involve himself in getting in and talking to the director. I think he tries to actually just suck it all up mm-hmm. slightly more passively perhaps than someone like Charlie Theron would. And uh, right. So I think I, I think he possibly got a little bit lost in the process, and I think George is just trying to keep this massive project in his head,
1: sure, uh,
3: happening. And I think George probably didn't have the didn't have the bandwidth to measure, actually just run through everything with everybody all the time.
1: Yeah, so many moving pieces on something like this, I can't even imagine.
3: Oh, it was extraordinary. At one point, the, the plan was to actually have about eight or nine different units shooting. And George wow. was just going to run between different units. But they ended up only, only doing the one because it just couldn't work any other way. Because George needed to be there all the time.
1: Yeah, Did you, did you get to go on set at all during the process?
3: Uh, no, I would have loved to. But no, um, when they were shooting the film, I was, being a, um, I was being a full-time father to a very, very, very new baby. So no, I couldn't go.
1: Good man. I, I feel your pain. Well, hey, Yuri's uh, sleep-deprived as we speak.
3: Yes, have you had your
1: coffee? Um, I have not had my coffee today. Maybe that's why I'm a little What are you low-key. doing? But I, but I decided to have a beer instead while we talked to you, which, wait a minute, that's a horrible yeah, idea. We're doing what are I thinking? Halfway through this,
0: you're going to get to sleep. Yeah, exactly. There's <laughs> um,
2: this is sort of a probably apocryphal story about Clint, um, uh, John Wayne uh, back in the day who just tried to cut out as many lines as he could and still get the point mm-hmm. across because um, he just felt that, that that was more powerful acting and storytelling. How much of the process was winnowing down and how much of it was putting stuff back in to make the story work? What was that process in the storyboard um, room look like?
3: Yeah. Um, it, it really was, it was really about, with well, the storyboard, it was really about making sure the film worked silently.
0: Interesting. Interesting. You know?
3: So
1: smart. I, I love yeah. that. We've sensed that and kind of talked about it. I think that's and we, we can't, so smart. And we can't wait for that uh, that monochrome release where apparently they're pulling out the dialogue, or most of the dialogue, I'd, I'd really love to see it sort of as a black-and-white silent film.
3: Yeah, and no, um, the production designer, um, Colin Gibson, uh, did, it, him, did a copy himself, uh, just did some processes himself and showed it to George again not very long ago. And George did sit there just going, oh, yeah, it's, it's my favorite version of the film. I yeah, ah. should really do that. So fingers crossed. I haven't, I haven't spoken to George for a couple uh, of couple months, so I don't know whether that's happening or not. We but, hope uh, so. I, I know they were shooting more stuff for another DVD release at some point, and I think there was a plan to do the box set of all the films. Uh, fingers crossed. They have all so
1: my money. I'm I'm literally throwing money at at them right now for that.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah so, so am I. So am I. And and maybe some some money on some slightly less licensed things as well, which I can't talk about. Um, um, yeah, yes, anyway.
1: pl- we'll talk about that off air, perhaps. <laughs> um. <laughs> It's talking about the story and um, how you said early on, they wanted to make sure that they knew exactly what the story was going to be. Did was there a cha- Were there ever any changes, or was it pretty much exactly the way it started? Uh, was
3: no, no, no. It did, I mean, you know, you've, I mean, I think the script. The script was actually written post us doing the storyboards, and the script mm-hmm. ended up being three hundred and fifty-seven pages long oh, and included wow. most of the storyboards because of course you know you're telling an action piece sure. and it's easy to tell action with pictures than it is with words um, they
2: should print and, and release that book honestly that would I be would, oh, I would buy hit. that book
1: I would also watch the 400 hour cut of this film oh yeah. <laughs> uh,
3: yes yes and, and and it would be really good to have margaret sixel do a uh, editors commentary oh, over the top of that would, 400 hours we we, and we, listen, we listen to her break
1: <laughs> i mean we we you know we bring her name up and it's, you know, a, a credit to her that, that we even know her name, that, you know, I mean, you don't all often know the editor's name of a film, uh, you know, a layman, you know, from, from a layman's perspective. We bring her up as often as we bring up George, because the, the, the cutting of this film is so crucial to the storytelling.
3: It's extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, she did, she did an amazing job. And, uh, and, and credit to her and George that they didn't kill each other during the film. <laughs> yeah. They, but they're still together. They each other afterwards. <laughs> right. and and, and they were still speaking.
2: A lot of times the storyboards, it it ends up, if they're super, super precise, it will feel like the cuts of the film. How much of this do you think was sort of indicated in the storyboards in terms of cutting, and how much was just discovered based on this mountainous pile of footage that she had to work with?
3: Uh, The storyboards are always the bones, um, and then obviously you find the little nuances and stuff within the cuts. George, George, absolutely works in the editorial suite like it's you know it, it, it is actually like a form of torture for everybody because he just goes through it bit by bit by bit by bit by bit, by bit. and it's such a long and such a detailed process but George will say um, the film is about 80% the storyboards and 20% something new and I, I think that's that's pretty it's pretty straight pretty close to it I mean when I was Saw the film for the first time, it was a fairly rough cut. It was actually like watching the storyboards, you know, you kind of knew what was coming because the shot language was all there, the shot choices were there, but there was still so much more that had been added to it a layering, you know, a further layering of information, which was, um, it just made the film so much of a richer thing. But the story did go through some evolution post the script being written for the first time, and extra things got added in. A couple of big chunks got cut out, uh, some of which is in the DVD, re- the you know the DVD release that got done. I think the death of Miss Giddy was something that was in there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there was a whole big chunk at the beginning of the film about how the Immortans world worked, really, really extrapolating that. Um, and then there was a big sequence which, thankfully, did get cut out. That was uh, involving uh, characters in the
2: Swamp. Right. Uh, the Stilt Walker okay. gonna... Helicopter backpacks. Wait, yeah. what? the helicopter backpacks?
3: Helicopter backpacks. And uh, napalm uh, attacked Attack the war ring with napalm, trying wow. to um, trying to uh, bring it bring it to a halt and burn everybody inside because they just wanted whatever was in the vehicle. How many?
1: How, how many of these um, of these uh, these things that that were cut were cut before filming? How many of them were actually were actually filmed? Did you guys filmed that?
3: Uh, that wasn't cut. That wasn't filmed. Okay. Uh, and the reason why was because basically uh, it opened up too many holes in the story. As soon okay. as you actually introduce the idea of flight, then you start introducing the idea of well, why doesn't anybody else have it? Right. Um, it completely undoes how the Immortan Citadel works. Moment you moment you have a helicopter backpack, well, you can fly up there. Sure. That sort of stuff. So that sort of stuff got cut out.
1: That's um, smart. That's smart.
3: And, and also, it was repetitive. And I think that's one of the big things that George always says: if it occurs to you that you can cut something, then cut it. Yeah, and you know, so and just to keep coming back to that.
1: Yeah, and and this film, um, you know, one of one of my biggest uh, pet peeves. I know I've brought it up before, is a film that breaks its own rules. And I think this film uh, excels. And and you're saying what what you're saying is is a testament to that, that they figured out all the rules ahead of time, and then worked within those rules. So we knew what to expect. Because whenever I see you know, a film that that does something cool like that, like a helicopter backpack, I can see some director or or a studio exec saying, yeah, but put those helicopter backpacks back in, those were cool. And then you try to explain to them that, yeah, but that undercuts everything. They're like, it doesn't matter, just do it. Um, And and I love that, that you guys stuck to those rules because it makes the film a stronger film and a stronger story.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. You can always tell when there's a scene that George comes up with that you know is going to get cut. Mm. Um, that one was one that you knew was going to cut because his prime direct, his prime motivation for doing it was because he wanted a shot where they're in the fog, and they, the headlights come on in the fog before them and drive straight at them, and then it suddenly goes up and over them. Uh-huh. an expected thing of something going over the top of them. Yeah, that's what he he was in, he was interested in that shot, and
2: but it uh, wasn't story it. motivated. It was it was visual cool shit motivated.
3: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then ended up just being you know what the it's it's kind of like a flying version of what the uh, the Rothschild Rock Riders mm-hmm. were doing uh, in the canyon yep. with, with, the, with the bikes. Yep. So
2: what's what's funny yeah. is that last week we just covered that section or two weeks ago now just covered that section and. Um, which struck what well, We talked about in terms of that which hasn't aired yet, but it's it, to me it was like the Galapagos Islands um, that these these finches uh, evolved independently because they couldn't get to the next island, and that's what made them have to evolve the way they did. And this yeah. feels like that. And and it, had they had the ability to transport themselves, it ruins the idea of that to me. And one of the strong things about each of these little individual ecosystems is that they can't get to the next thing. Those guys on Stiltwalker, Stiltwalker guys they can't get to anywhere else to evolve differently. They're stuck there because they're slow and plodding and they have no way of trans—you know, uh, uh, moving from ecosystem to ecosystem. So I'm really happy to hear you say that that idea, it's a cool idea, so I'm happy to have heard of it, but I'm also happy it didn't make the cut because it, does, it doesn't just destroy the logic of the Citadel to me, it destroys the logic of the, the beauty of the ecosystems and the individual um, worlds they stumble upon as they sort of flee um, to the green place.
3: Exactly, it's it's, it's uh, the thing that everybody that everybody's predicated around in that film is about survival. Mm. It's all about survival. That's it. Yeah. And actually, um, the guys in the and I probably shouldn't say guys. I should say women mm. who are in the uh, in the bog, uh-huh. the stilt walkers, and the people in the trees are supposed to be the Vivalini who, who never stayed left. Sorry, this is, this is spoilers. The Vulvolini who never left, the green place. Wow. That's amazing. They're the ones who stayed. Right? Oh, I so love it. they've devolved. Their culture has devolved, and that's why they, they're they fishing, they're trying to fish for crows. God knows why there's so many crows there. I don't actually know why the crows are there, but anyway. Right. Um, huh. But uh, they're trying to survive in a place which has actually become more and more toxic, but they don't want to leave because that was their home.
2: That's wow. beautiful. Well, that leads into my next question, actually, which I'm very interested by. Um, Yuri and I have stumbled on over the course of this last... Thirty hours of discussing this film, that um, we have v- small idiosyncratic favorite moments that just sort of come up, and they're they're never the ones we'd expect. I think is what we're finding. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. We just stumbled on one recently in the last episode. Are there favorite moments of the film to you um, that stick out, and and why are they your favorites?
3: Uh, I always love the buzzard chase at the beginning of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's so good. Just because it was, yeah. it's almost like the. This, you know, Mad Max 2 boiled down and stuck into one 15 minute sequence. Yeah. yeah. And it's everything you expected in a Mad Max film. And it boils down how the world works, how desperate it is. And it's just so full of energy and creativity. And so it's just one of those sequen- sequences you just go, yep, that works so perfectly. And, uh, in a, you know, the first time I watched it, and I don't get this often because I work in film, so you don't, you 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 get, a, I won't say jaded, but you get used to watching things that are awesome all the time or, or not so awesome and you don't get that carried away by it, but I remember watching that and getting that frisson of excitement of, you know, yeah. that, almost that little, that physical, physical quiver of, oh this is getting good now, I'm really enjoying this, and uh, and film doesn't often make you feel that way, so it was, that was one of those moments you just go, yeah, that's awesome. But we've... There's, there's characters who I love, and there's sequences I love.
2: Tell us. There's I I, I will I will sit here and listen to your favorite parts until your breath dries out. So anything you want to tell us about your favorite parts? I'm super into hearing that.
3: Uh, well, it's 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 yeah. Uh, it's so yeah. There's so many favorite parts in it. I I just love Nark's. Yeah Nux yeah. Is just one of my favorite is my favorite character in the film. Hundred percent. Same. But but you know what's really interesting? The first time I watched the film, just going off topic for a second. Sorry. Um, was a rough edit. That was back in September 2014 before I started working on comics and I hadn't seen anything in the filming at all, uh, so it was all completely new to me. And, uh, and it was really interesting. It was such a great film, even though it was rough and you really sort just go, you know, I, I came out of it after two hours, going, bloody hell, I need a cigarette and a strong drink. <laughs> um, and I don't smoke. I do drink, but <laughs> Um, and sat down in the foyer of Kenny Miller for about an hour just thinking about what I'd seen. Um, and, uh, but really interestingly enough, um, the least interesting character in the film at that point was Furiosa
0: mm, because
3: they hadn't got the cut really nuanced and it was very interesting. I mean, you sat there just going, yeah, she just kind of does what she does and she's less interesting than anybody else. But they really tweaked that and really brought her out.
1: Yeah, it really shows what editing—how important editing is—that you've got all the all the elements, but it's not a movie until they say that there's there's the movie you write is different than the movie you shoot is different than the movie you edit, um, and that's absolutely true.
3: Yeah, it's it's true, but at the same time, you know, with George, you know, we we said earlier he's such a visual director that you kind of know he he when we were storyboarding, he used to sit down in the morning for twenty minutes before we started and he'd sit in the corner of the room with his eyes closed and he'd, you know, if you didn't know what was going on, he'd go, oh, look at him, he must be getting tired and he, you know, he's getting a bit old and you know, he's having a sleep. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he'd open his eyes and go, OK, um, let's start now. And you knew that what he'd done was he spent 20 minutes running through the film in his head. Wow. Um, so George really remembers the film, really can strongly remember the visual imagery of the film even before he's, seen, he's, he's shot it. That's mm-hmm. remarkable. And, and I don't know. I haven't met another director
2: who does that. Well, that's, that's almost exactly my next question because I'm very curious about this. So um, because you're an artist, you are a de facto freelancer. That's how that sort of works out. Um, are you terrified about working with other directors now after having a storyboard-intensive <laughs> experience? Like, how is it going to be to go work with other people? Is that going to be terrible?
3: Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it depends on what the expectation is. I've worked with some directors who... Um, you know, who just—they just want you to do it the way they want. Um, there are other directors. Most directors, sadly, uh, just go, "Yeah, just and storyboard it, and come back and show me what you've done." Uh, but now that now that Fury Road's come out, now I'm getting to the land of we want to do it the way that you did it on Fury Road. Uh-huh. Right? Uh,
0: yeah. Do you we have don't 15 want years? To we don't <laughs> want
3: to, yeah, we don't want to take 15 years. Right. Right the storyboarding took two years on Fury Road but um, yeah I'm I'm, I'm I'm actually doing a Marvel film now um, wow. uh, with a fantastic director who's a he's a very lovely bloke and he wants you know he said you yeah, know I really really dig the way you did it on Fury Road and I'd love to do that too he's just going yeah I know but it's not going to happen that way yeah
0: yeah, yeah. so
3: but um, it is it is what it is and you have to make the best of it sure
0: do you but, have uh,
3: but yeah it's it's What's really awesome is meeting directors who actually visually have a strong idea of what they want in their head. Yeah. And as I say, there's not many of those.
1: And do you have um, do you have any, any any thoughts regarding then? And you know, it's, it's, it took 15 years to make this film, and it is you know it's a masterpiece and and a work of art. Um, and you know, he immediately has you know George said that he's got you know the the, the second the next two in his head. Obviously, with with the success of this. Hopefully it won't take another fifteen years to get to the next one um, but right but um but do you th- i mean how do you think in your head the the film or the the process will be different that that there aren't fifteen years what what you know what what will that film look like or will it look just just the same because his his vision is so strong and and that the addendum to that is can you you know confirm or deny that you're already working on the next film <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> what can I say? Um, all right. Um, okay. Well, I think George, George has already said this in in public, so I'm pretty sure I can say this as well. Which is, there are there's already a one completely finished script, which has had wow. some conceptual work done for it. Great. Uh, for a Furiosa story. Great. Um, which is a f- fascinating and Huge story, a really, really, really interesting story. Great, um, and um, uh, that's that's more or less ready to go. And then there's a Mac story, uh, which George titles Wasteland, and I think it's just a working title for the mm. moment, which is in a slightly more, um, slightly more primitive state, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, but is also a great story, although incredibly bleak. Sure, and uh, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. And I think you know, at the present moment, I, I don't think another film's going to take fifteen years. And um, yes. it's just a matter of the studios and George coming to terms with how they're going to do it. But I don't think George would go back and storyboard uh, a film out in order to write it again. Because although, you know, although obviously it reaps some um, rewards in terms of actually finding. Unique opportunities in order house to house the story, it was also quite inflexible. Um, mm-hmm. right. and I, I, I don't know whether George was ever joking with me, but um, towards the end of storyboarding Fury Road, I think we are literally about three, week, three weeks away from finishing the film. He was sitting there, and we had this huge room, um, in the Kenny Bill offices that was just surrounded with, um, boards where um, you know, all the boards are stuck up on noteboards all around the room it went around the room once and then around the room a second time um, and uh, and so he's looking at these things and he's tapping his bottom lip and he went I'm worried we don't have enough wives <laughs> oh, well, you know, at that stage um uh, and Garrett had died. Sorry, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen the film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I don't think anyone listening uh,
1: to our show is uh, has, has not seen the film.
3: Yeah, we're safe there. Toast the. Oh, actually, I'll go to that. I'll go to the second. second um, fragile. Um, the youngest. The youngest uh, wife had actually um, turned and sided with the Immortan, Uh and uh, and right at the end of the film, which. Did not get uh, done. Um, toast at the end of the film, as they're going up on the platform, anointed herself. At that stage, the Immortan was covered in blue powder instead of white, and mm-hmm. he, she started to smear blue on her skin and then stood out in front of the uh, in front of the crowd as they were going up on the platform, and they all started chanting she, she, she instead of he, 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 which is what they'd say to the Immortan Joe. Wow. And so there was that idea that she was broken. And that she'd realised that she could get power, and so George is there there just going, oh look, there's only two wives left. There's the Dag and there's um, Capable,
0: mm-hmm.
3: and uh, they're the only two left who aren't broken. We don't have enough wives for this. To, we don't have enough wives left for there to be a a story that goes beyond this because you know there's not enough people. I think we need another wife. <laughs> Uh And, you know, that's the point where you sit there and you look at this giant room filled with storyboards, you know, almost 4,000 of them. Uh And you go, George, 4,000 storyboards, probably about half of the lives of them. Fuck off. <laughs> she, can be, she can be agoraphobic. She can be in a box underneath the back seat. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> It'd be so funny if at the end of the film one crawls out and is like, what did I miss? What, uh, what's yeah, going on yeah. up here?
3: No, no, she never came out of the pot at the back. She's underneath the, uh, underneath the uh, in the place, place where they hid the entire time.
2: <laughs> right. How, how much of that room was talking George out of new ideas? Was that a thing that happened a lot?
3: Occasionally, George, George does have his bonkers ideas, um, some of which end up in other things. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, there's occasionally there'll be moments where you hear Brendan McCarthy just go, What? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: That's
3: no, great. You can't do that. And then, of course, there would be this debate about it and, uh, and George would just go, Oh, yeah, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, let's do it anyway. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, but usually what happens with George is... Uh, um, and I've worked on films where he's had people around him where have actually just gone, no, George, that's not a good idea. And I've worked on films where he hasn't had that, and sometimes that can go like, like Happy Feet 2, where it can go off into very, very, very strange territory. You sort of just going, yeah,
0: you yeah. need some
3: discipline on your ideas here. But generally, he surrounds himself with very, very good people like, like Margie, Margie Sixel, or Colin Gibson, the other produ- the production designer. Mm-hmm who are very, very smart in their own right and really, really look at films in a very honest way. Um, and it's not about ego. It's about how to tell that story the best way. And they really, really, really hold George to account for certain things. And um, uh, I think it's one thing that I, I haven't heard you guys talk about too much, but uh, I think what Colin Gibson, the production designer, did on Fury Road was extraordinary. Agreed. I, think I may have met, talked to you in an email a while ago about how I wish... Um, you could see the Bibles that he made up of all the different tribes in the film and how their ecologies worked And um,
2: I would give my bottom half of my body to read that <laughs> uh,
0: yeah,
3: uh, they're enormous enormous, enormous documents uh, and he just collected stuff and you know, probably only about 10% of what he came up with made it into the film in one way, shape or form but even if George sat there and just went, well, that's not quite what I was thinking about, about, the whole point was there was an intellectual rigor to everything that was actually designed. And as you so uh, often uh, mentioned, there's a real logic to everything that happens. Yes. And uh, so everything holds true all the time.
2: It's just what I noticed. My, my first, uh, I write books prim- primarily. The first book I wrote, I think, was the original draft was 400,000 words. And then it got cut down to about 120 130,000 words. And I just learned through that process that to make something feel complete, it means you're not seeing – you're only seeing part of the iceberg. You're, you're missing the vast majority of the work done so, on it to get to the right things. And so seeing –
3: just saying, tip of the iceberg.
2: Yeah. yeah. It, it feel it plays, man. And, and it, it feels that way. And, and that's why I would love to see any of like that brainstorming work that doesn't make it because it is – it is that that stuff supporting. the If you think the tip of the iceberg is beautiful, that's it's you you want to see more of the iceberg. That's just how it always works out. If you really love something, um, you want to see more of how it how it works out.
1: And I love the idea that if there are going to be subsequent films, that some of that, you know, could be employed. We've always talked about um, the st- you know we we've, we've sort of posited well what would this you know what story would we want to see come next, and we we'd be happy with just you know. Everyone being sort of a completely different story with different characters, with Max just sort of as the the catalyst for an interesting story told in this world. Because we just want to see more of the world. I don't need to see a sequel that has all the same characters in it. Minus Nux, yep. of course, no spoilers there. Um, but I just, yeah, I, I, I would watch, you know, I just like to turn the lens in a different direction and see another story and have Max wander into a, a place and... And and shit happen, and and the the groundwork is there.
3: Yeah, well, that's what happened with every other Max film. Yeah, um, you know the Max films kind of really don't literally tie together anyway. Though I mean, they're right. all they're all myths. Yeah. Um, yeah, the first one less so than the others, perhaps. But um, sure. Yeah, they're, they're mythological pieces.
0: And
3: yeah. They don't need to tie together. I mean,
2: the comic the comics, book kind the of the does. I do
3: got, got the job of actually trying to cut them together and make make some vague form of sense, but. Uh, yeah, that's pretty hard to do, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm
2: happy to hear you say that, because I read the comic book and, and noticed that connective tissue between the various Max stories, which is, there's a certain pleasure to it that I didn't necessarily expect, but watching those stories kind of slot together in these e- almost mythic episodes of your prototypical hero was really interesting to look at and think about.
3: Yeah, I mean, and, and, and I agree with you. I think if there was to be a, a sequel, in inverted commas, to Fury Road, I think it should be something that actually sits alone uh, because I think that's same that's far 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 smarter and a lot more creative to do
2: it's almost like it reminds me of James Cameron uh, who built this entire world and ecosystem for Avatar and then is going to spend the rest of his life making Avatar Um, just because there's so much work obviously done to get to that sort of tip of the iceberg in the first Avatar, and now there's three more coming out. Um, You know, it's one of those things that you just get immersed in because you realize there's so much there. And now that you have 15 years of groundwork to, to rest on, it's about choosing the things you want to do, not having to create in order to sustain a story. It's like, cool, we have all this stuff now. Let's take these elements and make something dope out of it.
3: Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, bring something new to it.
2: Yeah, oh, that. sure. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's one of the reasons why we ended up do, doing the comics, although God knows that took a long time as well, was sure. that George did have those little stories that he thought would be really interesting to actually try and figure out how to actually explain for an audience who was interested how certain things had happened, things that he thought might actually be of of interest. Yeah, uh, they, they are. And there were stories that we didn't get to tell as yeah. well as stories we to was was that uh, fun?
1: Was that fun for you to be able to then reach out and explore a little more yeah. and, and tell those stories? Yeah.
3: Oh God! It's been twelve years since I've bloody done uh, the storyboards on Fury Road, so it's like yes, back in Mad Max world. Thank God. Oh great! That's right. really good. So that was that was that was cool, and getting to see the film as well in its rough state um, was awesome. But um, yeah, I mean, you sit there just going awesome. Uh, you know, and they were they, those were stories that George had actually kind of developed with Nico Therus, who was the other screenwriter,
0: mm-hmm.
3: in the process of pre-production, mainly on the the second and third time the films in its pre-production, um, and they had uh, really, really gone through, particularly with the Furiosa story, they'd really gone through and figured out how these things worked. And then one at one point actually uh, uh, with the Furiosa story, there was. A bit of talk, I believe, and actually making that into a um, short film. Um, wow! But uh, that didn't eventuate.
1: That was, you know, that, that's that's funny. We talked the other day about uh, we would love to see the movie where, uh, you know, where Furiosa does the deal with the with the, the guys in the canyon, the the motorcycle yeah. gang, like because that's a whole other. You think about. What it must have taken for her to do that deal for the 300 gallons of gasoline, you know, in exchange for them blowing the like that. How does she go off? Where does she do that? There there are so many things that are left unsaid that, you know, leads your brain into those areas that we just find it fascinating.
3: Yeah, and funnily enough, that is the one story that we didn't get to tell in the in the comics that we did Uh because we didn't have enough time. And George wanted to do that story.
2: Do you just want to tell us now? yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. I know.
1: That so was just Josh.
2: Don't, don't, uh,
0: don't
1: here's here's the thing because we were just talking about this in in an episode we've we've recorded um, that uh, that has yet to air. Um, the there, there's a conversation in a quiet moment um, between Max when he's asking about the green place and uh, talking to Firosa for sort of the first time about her, and and he says, "Have you have you done this before?" And she says, "Many times." And, and that always, whenever I get to that point, I'm always curious what that means. And we, we sort of left it at, you know, it can mean a bunch of different things and all of them are right. And everything is, you know, if, if it leads me to a, to a different story every time I see the movie, it's, it's, it's working. However, if you can elucidate at all that moment as to what she's referring to... I would love to hear it.
3: I will. I can. What I will say is because it's all. It's actually really all covered in a very large degree in the story that George would like to do for Furiosa if if, if and when he gets to do it.
1: Okay, well then, um, enough said.
3: I think I'll I just tie it up with two things, which is um, the thing that she says she always wants in the film mm-hmm. is redemption. Redemption. Mm-hmm. And, and the redemption is for the things she's had to do in her past mm-hmm. that's turned into what she is. Right. Um, and that's an enormous story, and it's, it's, it's a f- fantastic story. Um, but she's – and I think the idea is that she had done so many terrible things uh, in order to get to where she was that she had forgotten – who she was Mm -hmm. to a certain degree and I think part of the idea was this process of actually trying to return to a home that she vaguely remembered but um, she had lost the way and I think, you know, let's just say that there was, I think she had gone through a process of trying to find her way back Mm -hmm. but never having the capability to get there.
1: Right. I I love it.
3: That's the sort of stuff that we would have actually touched at with the... The Rock Rider story, mm-hmm. and, and it's obviously covered massively in the Furiosa story.
1: Yeah, and, and you did, and it, and it is touched on uh, somewhat in the in the Furiosa story in the comic books.
0: Yeah.
3: Yes, yes, but as, pretty much as um, eruditely as we did in the film. Right. Um, uh, Mark, are there
2: images or, or things that you fought for in the storyboard room that didn't quite, uh, the, the conversations or arguments you lost, or there the things that you wish had made it, there were ideas that you had?
3: Um, not, not so much. I mean, look, we, we. Uh, it really was a question of um, four guys in reasonable spatsco throughout the film. Um, so rare the,
2: to hear that. Yeah.
3: Not, well, I mean, that's, that's one thing you get when you've got someone with such a strong visual vision. Is that it? And when you've got three other guys who work in the room, who are all because Brendan McCarthy's a comic book artist as well. So, and and George himself. Um, I don't know if you know this, but George. Drew a comic to get the funding to sell to sell the original Mad Max film.
1: George drew it. I did not know that.
3: Yeah. What? Yeah. It's, it's only a single page, and it's very kind of really Scottish, perhaps you could
2: say. Okay.
3: Uh huh. Um, so George can draw; he just doesn't have time. Um, sure. but, uh, but but he's done it himself, and so we're all in very much in a very similar headspace and it was just a matter of then just getting the material out and it being, you know, what George wanted. Uh, and uh, and so generally we didn't have too many uh, moments where we'd just go, oh, no, we want to do this, no, fuck you, no, we want to do this. Um, there was one bit that I really wish had got into the film and it was one sequence that I think was, it was a little bit that they actually put in the DVD but I don't think they shot it because basically it would have been I think it was too hard to do practically, which was um, the way. Post them deciding to go back to the um, the citadel, the Max Max and Fieraser and the wives and the uh, Val going back to the citadel, and they decide to make the, actually make the run through the um, Amorson's lines and uh, drive through the Carmada as you keep on calling it, um, <laughs> which I love um, and going hell for leather to get back to the Citadel through the um, through the canyon. And there was this whole sequence they were going to shoot um, where the vehicle, where uh, War Rig and the Wolverine on their bikes are sneaking through the sand dunes, trying to skirt around the, uh, the Morton's lines. Mm. They've got encampments. Search parties scattered all over the place. And, um, and they're trying to sneak through and uh, and it really elaborated how the Volvolini operated, because they're the they're the front runners, and right. they would go out and take out all the vehicles, um, and the crew of the vehicles that were in their way that would spot them, and it was really nicely done, and it was really this ratcheting of tension that really kicked it up because they're trying not to be seen, you know, they find the first vehicle, which is a polecat, because they're using the polecats in the dunes, because yeah. of course there's quite a great pole. Right. And you can drive through the dunes, and someone sits atop at the, the pole, looking around. So Great. they have mobile viewing platforms, mm-hmm. um, and they're and they're taking out each one of these vehicles as they come and, come up to them. But of course, there's more and more vehicles that they have to take out each time, and then in the end, they get sprung, and then they had to, they basically just have to turn and just drive full tilt straight past Ableton's camp because they've been sprung, and they're going to get caught. I'd
2: and love there's to there's a bit
3: in the film which is the only bit which. Sticks in my crawl, which is um, uh, that lovely sequence where uh, the Immortans campers in lethargy, they're all sitting around doing nothing.
1: I love that moment. Mm-hmm. I love That's that lovely,
3: scene. But you sit there just going, and then suddenly they're, ve- they're warring for no reason whatsoever, just drive straight past all of these vehicles. And you sit there just going, there's an enormous landscape. Why didn't you yeah. just See them go to yeah. that next sand dune and drive from there? Yeah, the right. The whole point was that they'd been trapped and they had to go that way.
1: Uh
2: uh-huh. Just
3: wish that's the only bit that I wish had been shot. It's a great. Uh, point. So yeah, actually understood why they made that choice.
2: Yeah, I wonder what the logistical reasons for that was. I mean, I, I yeah. guess is it saving time or losing?
3: Probably saving time, and also the fact that actually it involved having to drive that bloody great war rig down a giant sand dune. Right. Around. Well, sure. Yeah. Yeah, that vehicle could do amazing things, but I think that was a that was a step too far.
2: Sure. I have a question, um, and we'll start to get closer to wrapping up here because I, I uh, we've gotten so excited that we've sort of run on. Yeah, I just realized what the time is. Um, two, well, two things. One, I want to reserve the right now to have you back on because uh, I'm <laughs> not I'm not near done with you, Mark Sexton. I <laughs> that can do that. I love that. Um, my question is just just based on the last couple episodes Yuri and I have done, and we've done some guest episodes around this issue as well. Do you think George was prepared for the feminist? Um, uh, commentary on the film, and, and was there any conversation about that in the construction of the film? And what has that blowback been like uh, since?
3: It, it, it's really interesting how that's how that developed. Um, and, and George himself will say, "You you don't set out to make a any sort of film, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously there might be elements within the story that actually might make it such, but." You just set out to make a good story. Yeah. yeah. A story that's complete, that entertains and carries you along, takes you along for the ride. And then all that stuff is actually almost what the audience bring to it. Sure. And so all the elements are there. But I don't think George ever really intended to make a feminist film. But as a result of the fact that, obviously, Furiosa who mm-hmm. was always intended to be this character who was the equal of Max. Mm-hmm. Um, she had to be in order to actually drive this film forward. Um, and the fact that she was actually rescuing um, five women who'd been in this abhorrent situation in the Citadel, um, uh, that gives it a certain quality that um, that uh, lends itself to a uh, feminist perspective, which mm-hmm. is... Absolutely valid, completely, completely true, but not what we set out to
1: do. Yeah. Well, you know? I, th- I think it...
3: Literally, yeah, yeah. literally, what we set out to do was just make a great film.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think it speaks highly to, to George and you and, and the whole team that... um, And, and, and conversely, speaks so so poorly about, uh, about film in general that we even have to have the conversation yeah. Yeah. that this is, yeah. you know, because he made a well-balanced... Film that has you know great male characters, great female characters, um, it's it's perceived as as a feminist film when, when it should just be perceived as, a in my opinion, film. a human film, well, a well balanced film. But because there are so few of those in society today, unfortunately, yeah. in this in this business, in this Hollywood business in particular, um, it it stood out. And I think that's—I yep. think personally—that's why people gravitated towards it that way. But yeah, when you hear George talk about it, you always hear—you know—just him talking about telling a great story and making a, a good film. And as you know, the 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 maestro that that he is, he would try to bring you know whatever balance that that he could to that. So yeah, I, I can see how that would how that would come out.
3: Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, and, and it's interesting. I mean, I think they explored it more in the when they were editing it. But mm-hmm. really, yeah. In the end, in the end, it was just just a solid story that were after. So, now I completely agree with on that one. It's absolutely that's actually very smart. So,
1: yeah, great. It, Well, well thank so you, see that, Travis? We did another smart thing. That, we uh, that did Mark a smart
3: thing. smart. Oh, there's plenty of smarts that you were.
1: You and Ian have really made our
2: lives better by just uh, saying that we said something smart. It's, <laughs> it's, I'm going to write about you in my diary tonight, Mark Sexton. <laughs>
3: Is this story ever going
1: to get published? <laughs> yeah, just your parts, just the parts about you. Um, uh, would you? Yeah, would you like to? Um, we always like to offer our guests the opportunity to either promote something they're working on, they want people to look at, or to to let you know listeners know where they can contact them on the web or or whatever. Do you have anything you'd like to, to talk about before we wrap this up?
3: Uh, thanks for the option. Um, sure. I don't have anything. I, I, I'm I'm in the middle of working on a Marvel film at the moment, which I can't talk about. Sure, so of course. I, I did. I, I, we
1: knew um, not even to ask. Yeah. Um,
3: uh, but uh, I'm on Facebook, and if anybody, yeah, I'm mean, I'm completely happy to answer questions and stuff like that. If any, anybody wants to find me on Facebook,
2: I'm going to Facebook friend you tonight, Facebook, Mark yeah. Sexton. I'm going to do yeah. it. Um I'll facebook so, for yeah, you. Are, facebook, are there other comic uh, books that you have out that, that people could get or uh, what's the situation with that? What was that? Are there comic books or, or, or things you publish that people could support you with or
3: uh, not at the moment. I mean the Mad Max comics and I've done a little bit of stuff for a British comic called 2000 AD, but um, Judge Dredd we have uh, talked about it, Yeah. yeah. Judge Dredd, but um, storyboarding at the prison moment is my
2: world. Oh. Love it. Well, you're very good at it, so stick in that world for a while. We're gonna keep plugging the comic. Now that I've read it, I can tell everyone it's very good. And we've actually uh, spoiler alert for you: we just scheduled a uh, an episode just to, to go through the comic. So we're gonna be doing that soon. The comic
1: um, and the um, and the art of Mad Max book, which I or the, oh, yeah, which is terrific. Yes. Because yes. we could go on we could go on forever about the design of this film.
2: Yeah, we realized we do, we needed to devote an episode just to that, so we're gonna do that. Uh,
3: You guys uh, guys should try and get Colin Gibson on this. Colin Gibson will rock your world. um,
1: Might might you be able to, to help with that? We, oh, oh, I, can, I can ask. Okay, you. okay we, can, we can talk about that later.
2: Yeah, we'll sidebar that. We're super um, interested in, in, in that. And in, just for those of you listeners, um, Mark Sexton just promised to help us get Colin on. That's right. What, that's right. What I,
1: heard. I think I think I just heard Mark say that he could probably get us a George Miller on Skype. Yeah, TV. I heard the same thing, yeah. 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 So, <laughs> yeah, Mark, thank you for all the hookups and all
2: these people that are coming <laughs> on our podcast. Um, uh, also, I'll, do, I'll do
1: many things. Awesome. Also, because I'm very competitive with Travis, I just Facebook friended you, so accept uh, my uh, accept my request before you accept Travis's. Um, curiosa about this oh no he uh, did it now he'll
2: never Bridget, he'll, now he'll never Bridget. he'll never accept my friend request now um awesome man well thanks for coming on this has been uh the, the best be, the best better than even anticipated which you had high expectations coming in and we appreciate your time and we're gonna drag you back onto this podcast like it or not
3: that sounds fine by me awesome. outstanding
1: well my name is yuri lowenthal my name is travis centell
3: my name is mark sexton
1: And you are awaited.